0: to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. This is the fifth of a series of interviews that we recorded at the Words on the Waves Writers' Festival. This time we spoke with Eleanor Limprecht, who is the author of several novels, including The Passengers and her latest novel, The Coast. We spoke to Eleanor about leprosy, or as it's now known, Hansen's disease. Her process of researching historical fiction and the challenges that face writers in the 21st century.
1: Eleanor's also the chair of the board at Writing New South Wales, and I've done a few writing courses there. She herself teaches writing courses. I believe she's teaching some for Faber Academy now, which she mentions in the interview. And we talked about what these sorts of resources can bring to authors and wannabe authors and we also talked about some of the challenges that authors and other creatives face, like how to live in Sydney on an art salary, <laughs> and some of the solutions, like, for example, selling our children.
0: Okay, we're chatting here with Eleanor Limprecht. So what brings you to Words on the Waves?
2: Um, so I'm talking about my novel, The Coast, um, in a session this afternoon, and I taught a workshop called Novel Recipe Workshop yesterday. So tell us about your novel. So The Coast is about a leprosy colony um, to the south of Sydney at Little Bay at the turn of the century, and it's about three generations of a family who end up there. It's about isolation and stigma. Around leprosy, which is now called Hansen's disease, mm-hmm. and which isn't really talked about in Australian history, is this
0: a real place that was? It
2: is a real yeah. place, and it's a real. It's based on research, and it's based on a lot of it is based. I mean, it's fictionalized, but based yeah. on stories that I've researched.
0: I think you think about leprosy as being an ancient affliction, right? and it's yeah. not really something you see in the modern world.
2: Yes, but it was a thing in Australia, and um, and people were locked away. There was a leprosy act in eighteen ninety, and people who were found to have leprosy were forcibly locked up, you know until they were found to not, and generally they died in mm-hmm. in that sort of colony or lazaret.
1: When I think of leprosy, funnily enough, I think of Princess Diana because I know that she um, in her time spent some time with people afflicted with it and um, was known to have worked with people um who was suffering from that illness and i think she herself helped to destigmatize it a little bit
2: um, yeah and and it's amazing the stigma because it is ancient. It comes mm. from, a lot of it comes from the Bible. So it is actually now called Hansen's disease. Mm. And the reason they changed the name was to to try to take away some of that stigma around it as well. Mm. Um, in my novel, it's still called leprosy because they didn't change sort of the terminology around it until later, until the 1950s. But it is completely curable now and people aren't locked away anymore with it. But- mm. People still use that language. It's really interesting. Mm. I remember like during the COVID pandemic, people were still there were still some headlines about, you know, I feel like a leper or something. Mm. And it's actually that stigma isn't quite fair, is it? Because it actually wasn't at all a contagious disease.
0: Wow. That's a
2: that's a misconception Mm. around it. Yeah.
0: So that that's the coast. That's the coast. Tell us about some of your other novels.
2: So before that, um my third novel is called The Passengers, and it's about war brides um, during World War II from Australia who um, married American soldiers and went to the US. So one in particular it focuses on, and um, and it's about what it means to fall in love um, during wartime and completely move countries and things not being maybe as you expected a lot of australian actually it's the biggest migration of any australians ever was the migration of, of australian women um to overseas as war mm-hmm. brides during world war Two. wow yeah okay. it did not but it's up. not really again it's not talked about in the history mm-hmm. that we
1: read about world war Two. is and this sorry is this something that interests you like bringing these little pieces of history out into into the lot
2: yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. I'm very
2: interested in um in sort of unspoken about things mm-hmm. and and that was the passenger I mean the passengers definitely those stories. I went and met war brides in the US in in their 80s and 90s and they were Australian and they still thought of themselves as Australian even though some had never been back since yeah. wow. since they
1: moved over there in the 1940s so and how do you come across these facts then if they are so little talked about
2: Um I just am interested I think I'm really interested um I'm particularly sort of attuned to human stories and One's this, for some reason, interests me. And the reason I was interested in the passengers is kind of um, evident because I'm an American who's moved here. I met and married an Australian and I moved here really quickly for love. And, and you know, it was, it was challenging in 2002, which is 21 years ago. And I think when I learned about these stories, I thought, how challenging would it have been in, you know, 1947 mm-hmm. when And with father's
1: prospect of returning home again.
2: Really hard to return home. And there was no way of actually, you know, Googling the person and making sure they were legitimately who they said they were. And and there was no, um, you know, you couldn't call, you couldn't um, easily... Fly back and see your family. There were all sorts of things that were, and then over there it was really hard to get a job. And and, and um, post-war, the housing market was incredibly difficult as well. So it was a difficult time for a lot of those women.
0: Yeah. And how you how do you go about doing your research for that kind of thing?
2: Um, so I do go into archives. I, I spend um, a lot of time in various archives. My book just before that was my second novel which was my first historical novel, was about um, Long Bay Women's Reformatory because we might have heard of Long Bay now as a men's prison, mm-hmm. but before that it was a women's prison. And I wrote about a particular prisoner who was um, there for being an abortionist and she, she actually had a child. She was pregnant and had a child mm-hmm. in jail. So all of her story came out of archives and that was sort of New South Wales Records Centre in particular. Um with the passengers, it was a combination of archives and interviewing people and mm. going places like the War Memorial in Canberra um, and going into their archives. With um the coast, it was a combination of of that and going to the medical archives as well. So there's um there's medical archives in Sydney as well, which um had some of those old records, even from the Laz Lazarette there. Yeah, so a lot of those. And I was I did actually go to the US as well. With that, we were just over there for visiting my family. And there's a big, um, the the sort of leprosy hospital for all of the U.S. is in is in um, Louisiana and I went there and went into their archives, which was amazing too. And do
0: you tell stories of the people that you encounter as their stories or do you use them more as inspiration?
2: I use them more as inspiration. So Long Bay was based on and was based on a real story that was fictionalised and, in fact, the the cover of that novel has the prison photo of the actual woman you've been writing about and I used her name, so... But that was um that was after speaking to her her relatives and, mm-hmm. and they were comfortable with me doing that. Um now I, I'm I've with my subsequent books I've learned a lot of stories and then sort of fictionalized things and come up with my let my imagination kind of create
1: my own character it probably allows you to tell more you know because one person's story would be specific you know and it allows you to draw in probably some of those real interesting aspects of different people's stories
2: yes yeah and probably I've gotten more confident with historical fiction as well and and Imagining those times and places and stories.
1: It seems like you need to have a level of confidence in yourself to say, I'm prepared to fictionalize something, you know, events that have happened and open myself, I guess, to potential criticism that it's not accurate. So, how do you find that process of inserting your own narrative into these Um, semi true stories?
2: Yes, I think it's interesting because I, not having grown up in Australia, not being from here, I have an outsider's view. And I think that that actually is a really valuable view because I don't take anything for granted. I don't feel like I know anything. Mm -hmm. I'm coming sort of from zero. Mm -hmm. and So I'm always learning. I'm reading all the time. I'm always learning everything I need to know and and interrogating all my sources all the time. And so that gives me this kind of perspective that doesn't have any, any sort of ingrained knowledge about something. so quite objective yeah i think objective but also of course i come to it with my own sympathies mm. and my own kind of i mean i obviously i'm interested in women's stories too mm. um and and i'm interested in sort of things that have had shame and stigma associated with them probably unfairly yeah mm in the past so it's a
0: fascinating era that kind of post-colonial time in australia I remember being in i think it was one of the prisons like a old prison and just seeing the stories of some of the prisoners there and how they got into to prison and the kind of situations that they were in i think one of the women in there was in there for like selling her children like it's a completely different time and the challenges that they would have gone through
2: yeah and we we can't go in with our modern sort of mm-hmm. you know judgment judgment yeah. our contemporary judgments too you have to say like actually um being working class at that time was incredibly
1: yeah. hard you know mm-hmm. there were there it, there it was, was for death i guess in some situations
2: yes, you know. and so it's to kind of go in and say, well, if hunger was a daily thing for you, if mm-hmm. if you know the only option was sort of prostituting yourself or something like that, what what other things would you be able to do? You know, if if you had no autonomy as a woman at that time, um, so it is interesting to kind of look at all the limitations and and consider them too. So yeah, it's hard to go in with the sort of ethical and moral compass we have mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, And children weren't, children were not, they didn't have rights as they have now as well. So it was a, yeah, it was an interesting time in that sense too.
1: I'm interested too. um, You're the chair of the board of directors of Writing New South Wales. That's correct. Yes. So how long have you been involved with Writing New South Wales? I've been on the board there for, I feel like about four
2: years, four or five years. Yeah.
1: I'm just wondering how these types of writing communities how they've changed I guess and what they offer now in sort of a modern society for authors who are all over the place
2: yeah I I sort of came to writing New South Wales as you know taking courses when I first moved to Australia yeah. mm-hmm. and yeah, I've, done, I've done a couple of courses there yeah. They were great <laughs> and it was like it was such a nice beautiful spot in Calum Park wonderful writers that were teaching these courses and it felt like such a community-run organization as well. It was, you know, a not-for-profit organization as well. And and when I did become a writer um, and I was asked to teach some courses there, I re- remembered really how important it had been to me. And I thought, I if there's something I can do to give back to the community, it's through that organization. And Um, and through the things they do, like writing groups, um, you know, just having a place for writing groups to meet Mm. an online place or an in-person place, organizing festivals, um, you know, prioritizing diverse and emerging voices. So I think that it's just a great organization and it's something we really need. Um, we need to kind of advocate for writers and that they should be paid for the work that they do Mm. and, And that they should, you know, that we should have sort of particular bodies that look after us around AI and around Mm. copyright and all of that. I mean, those aren't necessarily what Writing New South Wales does, but all of those organizations for writers like the ASA and the Mm. Copyright Agency, I think they're all really important in that way. Mm.
1: The political landscape really affects what you guys do too, because I know at times, you know, funding just gets slashed for the arts. And, you know, we're big fans of the arts here and love to see when a a government acknowledges the importance of the arts and acknowledging it through funding. So how do you find that the funding opportunities change what you guys are able to do?
2: So it it certainly was a challenge to writing New South Wales when they didn't get the multi-year funding from Create New South Wales, but the amazing thing about the leadership there and the the CEO Jane McCready. I mean, the financial reserves are really strong. There mm-hmm. has been funding from other places. There's been year by year funding from Create and from Ozco and and also so there's still that community there. There's still the community still still, and and so does it change what they can do? They could certainly do more with mm. more more events and things like that. Or yeah, and and probably have you know wouldn't be so stretched if you mm. look at. If you look at um, salaries for arts roles across Australia, they're so low. I don't, I don't know how people live in Sydney, and mm. and it, it just is. If those bodies, if they were funded better, you know, if if those um, not-for-profit organisations could pay more
1: people more mm. to work for them, and but, um, to feed back, back more into the art, yeah, community. absolutely. Mm. But there is that whole lovely image of the starving artist you know <laughs> a bit so of pressure never goes astray we start selling our children again
2: <laughs> i don't know if anyone wants my teenagers
0: <laughs> um, i want to pick up on something you said about ai and how you think that that is going to affect the future of writing
2: it's really interesting um i was thinking about it the other day quite a bit because I think it is very frightening that um, that people are just, I think students use, are using it in universities and there's a lot of, um, but I also think, um, and I was playing around with it. My friend was asking me to help him with his speech at his brother's party and I was quite busy. I was like, put it into chat GPT and see what it says. <laughs> and it wasn't very great, I'm going to say. And I think that still there is a completely a role for writers who know how to write and know how to see. And, I mean, it, it just, it can do very average writing. It mm. can do average drawing, but yeah. can it do great? Mm. Yeah. Can it do great work? And the hope
0: is it will get rid of a lot of the menial writing. Mm. Well, that's
2: right. And I don't think it, that it's bad in that sense. Mm. But the worry is that people just think I don't ever have to write and they rely on that and they don't develop those skills because how do you become a great writer? You write, mm. you know, you write mediocre things for a long time Mm -hmm. and you're never going to get over that mediocrity if you're not practicing so
0: i think the thing to be seen as well is if if people would want to write read something that is written by an ai or if they need that connection with an author and someone who has you know something to say even if the writing was great it's hard to imagine that people will connect with it on the same level
2: yeah there's humanity i mean that's certainly what interests like human stories or what interests me and things i think the other thing that's quite scary though is is the when um it can take photographs and you know and the deep voice the deep fake, the voice, the yeah, deep yeah, fake things right. are an entirely different side of of frightening and i suppose people might be saying well this is the writing of a real person and they might yeah. not be a real person it's
1: that misrepresentation yes isn't that's yes. you said you mentioned university students the idea that they're presenting that as their own work. I think mm-hmm. that's what people react to. When you've used tools like this as a writer, and I have too, I use it for various different things, not for my fiction writing, but like you say, just day-to-day stuff. And you can see how it's a very useful tool. It's a bit like Googling and very efficient at collating a lot of information together. And I think most people can agree that that sort of usage is fine. You know, you're just using it for your personal life to make get rid of some of the menial tasks, for example. Um, But when people are starting to pass it off as their own work or um, using it to cut corners, that's when people start to react negatively, I suppose. And we had our own conversation about this around Ed and I, around, um, you know, copyright in general. You know, how we treat these kinds of things normally And then how they appear in AI. So if you are passing yourself off as, or you're passing your work off as as if it's your own when you've plagiarized it from somewhere, we already have rules around these sorts of things. We already have agreed as a writing community and as a wider community that we don't accept that. But then it's how do we apply those same principles to the world of AI, which is quite
0: different in terms of how it. Works. You're talking about how how we protect writers from
1: yeah how from the same evils, I suppose. Yeah. How yeah. Do we, and I think that's what most writers want to know. How are we going to be protected from this kind of stuff? And how, especially those who do produce published work, how am I going to stop my work from getting stolen and used by AI? I think yeah,
2: so, I think that, that is a really good question because it obviously does this big wide um it casts a really wide net and it just grabs a whole lot and pulls it in and you think what if my work is caught in
1: that net it is is. on online somewhere so that's right and you're not being reimbursed at all for that usage of your work and it seems very different I mean we all know as writers that we take every influence around us and we do use things consciously or otherwise that have been done by other people yeah Um, but when a machine is taking that And reproducing it and passing it off as something else, I think that's a little bit different.
2: Yeah. No, they're big issues and they're things we are, I think every writer should be paying a lot of attention and
0: considering. Yeah. yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to um, put out there?
2: Yeah, so um, at the Faber Academy, there's a, they do these writing a novel courses and memoir writing, and it's um, run through out of Allen and Unwin as well. Okay. But um, but the tutors are all published authors in various fields, and so I'm teaching a daytime writing um, a novel course in Sydney. Okay, so Friday, it's face to face, face to face. I know. Lovely. <laughs> which is really exciting i'm excited about it. from 10 to 10 a.m to 1 p.m and it starts in late july and there's one scholarship i think the applications close on monday for that scholarship so they might be post this but i think that the applications for the course are open until um mid-june so yeah it'll be really lovely and and we talk about all of the kind of aspects of novel writing and then also do a lot of writing exercises mm-hmm. and and um, reading each other's work
1: uh, what's the target demographic for this course is it people who are coming to it for the first time is it people who are maybe workshopping uh, you know a first draft that they already have
2: I think it's a mix so you do get a mix of people some people have done masters already in okay. creative writing and they <laughs> come in and because they just want to continue connect, uh, and connect yeah. and the wonderful thing about the Faber Academy because it's in a public because it's run out of a publishing house, they have access to editors and, mm. and, you know, publishers and things like that. They actually launched their anthology here at Words on the Waves. Oh, yeah. They yeah. publish an anthology of the students' work and that goes out to, like, editors and agents.
1: Yeah. so Wonderful. What a great opportunity for writers. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So. Well, thank you very much, Anna, for chatting with us. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite great.